Hi, I'm Katerina and this is Sound Effects, a new music and mental health podcast. In part two of my interview with Marianne Riskeller, a music therapist and vice chair of the British Association of Music Therapy, I meet Marianne in her home where she teaches singing and we talk about her practice at Jackson's Lane Theatre as the director of North London Music Therapy. In addition to her music therapy work, we talk about the Crouch End Festival Chorus through which she went on tour with Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds. I'm good. I'm kind of coming down from from gig high, finally. I loved it. There's all sorts of different theories that underline music therapy. I happen to be a, a, psychoanalytic, a psychoanalytically informed music therapist. Um, but um, sometimes it depends on the client group you're working with, and sometimes it depends on just what theory interests you the most. A lot of people say when working as a music therapist with people with dementia that, per- that the person-centred stuff really kicks in then because it's just it's just the most immediate and the most appropriate. You can't really be thinking about um, making interpretations with someone with dementia. It's not usually very practical apart from anything else. There is a music therapist who developed a form of music therapy called cognitive analytic music therapy. She's called Stella Compton Dickinson. And that was generated through a lot of work she did with forensic patients in a secure hospital, a secure psychiatric forensic hospital in the Midlands. Phil Clark, who's been on this podcast before, is really heavily influenced by Jungian theory. I happen to be influenced by Kleinian theory and all the object relations theories that come after that. But that doesn't mean very much unless unless you've kind of done some reading. But yeah, there's, there's lots of different theories. There are also theories that especially come from organisations like Norval Robbins that are just music therapy uh, theories in themselves. There's historically been a lot of infighting within the profession, especially between the psychoanalytic therapists and the Nordoff Robbins music therapists who call themselves music centred. And so I, I could be doing them a grave disservice here, but I will try and explain it as best I know. A lot of the old school theories of Nordoff Robbins are um, about um, the real work happening within the music and the music itself being a therapeutic medium and that talking can get in the way. And so that actually, I, this could be wrong, but I thi- I hope this is accurate, but I think the idea is, is more that you would go into a room and that you would start playing as quickly as possible and that a lot of stuff would be worked out through the playing and I think a lot of it would be non-verbal and that talking wouldn't necessarily be needed and then the work would finish. And these days they do a lot about, there's a model that they've developed called community music therapy where the line between music therapy and community music is quite blurred. So they're less boundaried, you know, oh, well, you know, if it's practical, if you're, if you're running music therapy in, say, a hospital and the patient can get to the corridor, you can just run music therapy in the corridor, that kind of thing. Which some people find very, very liberating and some people uh, really get a lot out of working in that way. Yeah, there seems to be a big tradition of music therapists yelling at each other, either through journal articles or at conferences and just kind of saying something a bit provocative and then everyone else being a bit like, oh, okay. Um, there also seems to be a new generation of people that are a bit like, oh, can't we all just get along? And I don't think it's as simple as that, because I think if we become this homogenised thing, then we don't recognise the strengths in each model. 
Um, there's a thing that Nordoff Robbins therapists do, especially the older school ones, which is called microanalysis. So much in the same way that if you're training as a talking therapist, you would write out all the verbal content and then you would go through it with a fine tooth comb. They do that musically. So they transcribe everything and they put it into a score, even if it changes time and even if it changes, uh, you know, if, if the speed of it changes, if the instruments change, you end up with these very, very complex scores. But they do a microanalysis of it and they look through it with a fine tooth comb. And I really wish that I knew more about that. I think that's the next thing I'm going to learn, is to how to do a microanalysis of the musical elements of my, because that will hopefully, um, I think, I'm not sure, exactly what the purpose of it would be for Nordoff, you know, whether that, you know, if, if that communicates something about the essence of what music is being played that's therapeutic. For me, it would be, well, the music will hopefully back up what I'm already hearing about what someone's communicating to me. But I just think it would be a really, really interesting exercise to do. Certainly when I did that for the verbal stuff, when I was training at the Tavistock, it made me a much better, like, dynamically informed therapist. So I could only help, it would really help me understand musically what's going on. So really the level of musicianship needed to be a music therapist is pretty high. To even get you onto the course, you usually have to be trained to a very high level in one instrument. You don't have to pass an exam, but you have to be, it's like being fluent in a language, you have to be fluent on at least one instrument. And ideally, you'd know your way around a piano or a guitar as well, something harmonic, because it's, it's useful to be able to support um, people during sessions using something that can be quite bulky and can have quite a lot of notes. Um, so my first instrument is singing and my piano playing isn't dreadful enough that they didn't accept me on, so it was okay. Um, but the really interesting thing about the training is that for a lot of people um, who've grown up playing in bands or playing in orchestras, you learn patterns and you learn very strict ropes and you have you know, ways of doing things. And the training was just teaching us how to improvise. And for the, for the most part, how to listen and how to stop playing and to only play when you've got something interesting to say and not just making noise for the sake of it. Because that's what people are in therapy for, is to be listened to. They don't need to hear the therapist doing all sorts of magic tricks. It's like, it would be like a talking therapist making too many interpretations. But that's, that can be difficult to get over initially because lots of people go into all sorts of therapies because they want to help people and there can be lots of therapists that want to, you know, there's a bit of a God complex or a saviour complex or something like that. And so for music therapists, the thing to, that we have to think about is that it's not for our musical satisfaction and not all of the playing will be musically satisfying and that actually that that's not necessarily what we were ever aiming for. Sometimes it will be really necessary for a patient to have something that's satisfying but for all sorts of psychological reasons. But for the most part, actually if you're working in the way that I'm working where you're making noise and you're, and you're conversing, as part of that, then that means that means anything goes. It, it's, it's it's acceptable as a form of music. There's some musicologists that don't like people like John Cage, for example, because they would they would consider that what he does isn't music, that it's just noise. Um, North London Music Therapy was started entirely from scratch. There was no waiting referral list. There was no. I didn't have anybody giving me anything. I just left a very stressful job and decided I didn't want to work for anyone else. And I kind of figured, well, this absolutely is not ideal. So, you know, my finances weren't ready, my brain was not ready, but I just couldn't bear working for anybody else uh, because I'd had a particularly stressful experience. 
I quit, uh, I was working at Pupil Referral Unit and it wasn't the work itself that was difficult, it was the environment that it was in. North London Music Therapy formally started on the 5th of November 2018, but it's all been built from the ground up. And that was kind of born out just through experiences and frustrations in other organisations. I've worked for charities, I've worked for the NHS, I've worked for, uh, I've worked in the education sector. And even in an ostensibly private education sector, because there's always cost concerns, and the result always is that therapy is terminated after a certain point. Sometimes that's fine and that's acceptable and that makes sense in therapeutic terms. At other times it feels very, very arbitrary and in some cases after about six months it just felt like we were beginning. It felt like they just got used to the space and I, felt, I found that really difficult to deal with. I found that pretty intolerable because I just didn't think it was fair. And that's not been my experience of therapy. You know, if I'm going to set up a service, then other people should have that experience as well. And a lot of the people that come here when they're working with me are here because not because they identify as musicians but because there's something wrong and it just so happens that the majority of people that come here don't have a diagnosis if they were a child we'd say they'd have social emotional and behavioral difficulties as a way of categorizing them adults there isn't you just call it the worried well so it, this is the sort of client that I was kind of hoping for in a way. People that maybe would go for psychotherapy and could probably benefit from psychotherapy, but for whatever reason they want a creative medium or outlet as part of their therapy. And so it's different to other work because what you find is when you're younger and you, and you experience music maybe in the education setting, you're, you're taught things and either you can master a skill or it's more difficult for you and sometimes there are people who maybe will tell you that you're good at something or that you can't do it you know that kind of age-old story of oh I wanted to join the school choir but I was told I wasn't good enough or I was told to stop singing or something like that it repeats itself all over the place and so what we end up finding here is that people really desperately want to make music and they want to play but actually it's just getting past the barrier of well I don't know actually how to press the buttons in a way that will create the sounds that I hear when professionals do it but actually, what I'm doing is valid, and what I'm doing is still playing, and it still uh, counts, if you like. Um, so it's kind of like going the other way. When you work with kids, you try and they're, they're much freer and happier to be... I'm being very, very gentle. But when working with kids, a lot of the time kids don't have as many hang-ups on, you know, they're very happy to just kind of go bash on the piano, or just kind of pick up a percussion instrument and shake it and see if it makes a noise. So that's fine, and that's you, know, and that's about taking all of that energy and kind of um, thinking about it in a way that's easier to understand, and thinking about it in a way that kind of right. So we're playing in this particular way because you're telling me this sort of thing. So you have a lot of stuff to begin with with kids, but with adults, sometimes it's about um, there being a lot of structure inherent and present in things that are acceptable societally and things that are acceptable in someone's mind and things that might hold you back and actually just trying to let some of that go so that someone is able to be more expressive and to just make some noise and see what that tells us. In my experience, I'm thinking about the sort of person that I am thinking about who might be interested in coming for therapy. So that's usually somebody that works in an organisation, so they're not working for themselves. Um, they may be in the NHS or they're in a corporate environment, but it's quite hierarchical. And people get very, very attached to that, and it becomes it can become part of your identity. And you know, and I am a working professional, and I am X job title, and it means that I do these things within these parameters, and this is in my remit, and this is okay. And so then being told 
that actually here's a space where it's totally free and there's a load of stuff that you don't know how to manipulate and you haven't mastered. Even though someone tells you that that's all right, you still don't know what you're doing with these things. And all that you're expected to do is to pick up an instrument, if it's pick upable, and do something with it. And that some meaning will come from that. Even though we can see it as exploring and we can see it as liberating and playful and stuff, for people that aren't used to that, to get over the line into that way of thinking is, is quite a challenging thing to do. So something I'm thinking a lot about at the moment and I don't know is how do I make something that actually is quite liberating but therefore quite it puts, it puts someone in quite a vulnerable position and so also is quite scary. How do I make that more accessible immediately to people so that um, people might feel more inclined to um, just try to think out? And, be willing to take the risk and kind of cross the Rubicon, if you like. Because sometimes I think when I'm working with people who are able to make that leap and to start to really get something out of their therapy and it starts to click and we start to think, okay, this is this is why we're here in this room each week. This is why all of these instruments are here because actually the breadth of sound is really interesting and a lot of the things I can communicate here without words, I can do a lot with these things that don't look like they can do very much. Once you get to that point, it's like pulling the veil back on. Actually, I've been I've been holding back in lots of areas of my life. There's lots of other areas where I could play and explore, and so it's it can feel. It's not always the case. It's it seems to be with the people I've worked with it. It can feel quite like a Pandora's box. What I think is interesting about this space in particular is the idea of space. Yeah, I I did wonder about the venue because there's a hospital around the corner here as well that I did try and see if I could get some space at. But I was I was quite aware that I kind of wanted to try out both and see if we have you know if we have an explicitly creative space how would that be and then an explicitly clinical space because lots of music therapists are in the NHS and uh, a lot of justification for music therapy uh, historically has been built on getting evidence through the medical model and so I wondered what people would take most kindly to um, but what I liked about this venue it being a theatre space is is that it's a lot of things to a lot of people but it's a space where you can be free and you can express yourself and that actually there's a little bit of bleed through from other rooms there's a little bit of sand coming through which is not ideal but is often the case in music therapy but does have the advantage of you know you can hear that other people are also expressing themselves in some way shape or form next door the Jackson's Lake work is really interesting because here uh, a lot of people come to, I kind of use this venue as my clinic, if you like. So I hire, um, there's a couple of spaces that I really like using in here, especially one that's at the back um, because there's another entrance and it can be a very, very private thing if you want it to be. So we're kind of sat in the foyer where there's loads of music and there's loads of buzz and stuff. But if you go further back, there's a side entrance you can come in and there's a little room which you can use as the waiting room. And then you can come straight through into the space that we use for music therapy and there's a piano in there already. It's quite a big room, it's slightly bigger than I would maybe like, but we can set up tables of instruments, there's chairs and there's different places we can sit and play or we can just be at the piano. So this is the room I usually use in here. Oh, nice. So you have this piano and I quite like that it's open here and that you can see all of the keys. Because it's old and it's had a life. Yeah. <laughs> And you can see all the organs moving, and not all the keys work. 
which I quite like, which is quite... I like imperfect instruments for music therapy. I have a drum with a plastic skin on the top that has loads of fingerprints and beta marks in it and stuff. And people usually talk about it and I, I, I ask people to kind of think about maybe where those marks have come from. And I mean, the answer is that other people have, have played it and so it's got life of itself and it holds all of the, um, the markings that other people have made on it, which of course we all do, yeah, blah, 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 yeah. yeah. There's the symbolism of that. Yeah. If, do people comment on this themselves and say, you know, does it frustrate them that it doesn't fully operate as they might want it to? I think, yeah, usually usually people say that, um, I mean, it's like me, um, a lot of people have said that they like being able to see the keys and see how it works. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people are interested in how the pedals work. And I don't mind being quite concrete when explaining something about the instruments, especially when you can see it, because this pedal on the left, um, for anyone who's listening that doesn't know, is um, when you hit, when you press a button on the piano, strings at the back and it, and it hits three strings per note. That note has three strings, this note has three, blah 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 blah. When you put the left pedal down, it only hits one of the strings. So it's not a massive change in sound, but it creates this kind of softer and slightly warmer sound as it's called the damper pedal. And so that's that's one effect that you can have. And then the right pedal, if I don't have the pedal down, I can play some I can play a chord for example, and then I let go and it stops. If I hold the pedal down, the right pedal, and I play a chord, and it carries on even though I've let go. Oh, I see. And then what's the mechanism that's allowing that to happen? That I don't know. Okay. That I don't know, but that's but that's what the pedal does. Okay. But this is the room that um, we can't open the door now because we have to take the alarm off. But you can come in round the side. And they don't always have these boxes here. There's chairs that I can set up so it becomes a waiting room and there's bathrooms and people can get ready and stuff. Oh, okay. So this setup is pretty ideal. And then I come in through this door and collect people and then they come in for therapy in here. So you can see just for like just one person it's quite a big space and ideally it would be a bit smaller. But having the waiting room, well the room that we can use as a waiting room is, was a bit of a deal breaker for me. Um, but that's the space I usually use. But I like this building because um, the in the local community, they, they are really fond of it. There's a real affinity for it. So everyone that lives around here that I've talked about the service to, they go away from the sessions and so on. And like, oh, that's a good idea. Um, so it's, it's, it's well-loved and it's well-regarded. And so um, there's a lot of goodwill towards the building, which I really like. And... They're friendly here and the, the setup's nice and yeah, all of that stuff. Oh, I, I always get a nice time from here. Mm. Do, you, did you use to, did you use to like, before you, you were, Not like, much. much. I used it for um, I used it for some workshops and I used it because um, someone someone I know had a rehearsal here. Um, but in general I didn't I didn't visit it much. No, it, it, it's really served a purpose for this particular thing. But it's the same as the service out in Harrow. We happen to have a lot of referrals out there and a couple of them stuck. And again, it was the right building. It's a council-owned building. Everyone's friendly. The room is in a good position. Like the setups, the setups pretty useful. And it's just been it's just been really chilled out. And again, it's a building that people know and have a lot of good associations with, yeah. which usually bodes well. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm walking down Marianne's road. 
it's a, a bit of a rainy day. It's a very peaceful street. telling me mm -hmm. that you had done some work with Noel mm -hmm. with the Crouching Chorus. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's a good place to begin. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so I sing in the Crouching Festival Chorus and before I joined the choir, Noel Gallagher released his first album, which I think was eponymous, if I remember yeah. right. And um, my choir is the choir on it. And so in the first song, and everybody's on the run, there's a little, uh, you can hear everyone kind of shuffling and getting ready, and there's a little cough, and that's my friend Emily. Oh, that, that cough is so distinct. Yeah. curly hair she's always on the end of the row um she's uh, she's quite a vibrant character so yeah so they they recorded all the choir parts for the first album and also did the tour and I joined as they were doing the tour so I was really lucky and I got picked to do one day on that tour so I did the Liverpool gig I also got off of Wembley but I couldn't get out of work and I was so upset. So we all got back into Victoria and everyone else went one way to go off to Wembley and I went to the other to go to work and I was just furious the whole day. That means that you would have been there when Noel was doing the Teenage Cancer Trust mm -hmm. charity gig. Were you, you were there? I did 18, I can't remember if there was more, was there more than one? I don't know. I definitely did 18 Age Cancer Trust with Noel. I was there. Were you? Yeah, I was there, remember it. Oh my god, right, I've got a photo, let me show you. Yeah, yeah I did, um, we didn't record on the second album, but I did the second album tour okay. in the UK. I don't know if he took a choir abroad or not. There was a thing about him wanting uh, Crouch End in particular because he'd heard us at another gig. I think we've done some work with Ennio Morricone, so I think it was that. I think he went, I think he went to that gig and saw us and said, oh, I want that choir. So I think that's how it came about. I'll give you, I'll give you a tour of all the yeah. choir folks. So that's us with Hans Zimmer okay. at the O2, so I'm about there. This one is the Teenage Cancer Trust one. Okay. So there, there I am in the membership. Oh, amazing. <laughs> how incredible is this? Because I was, I was right near the front here. Were you? Where there was a lot of goodwill in that room. We, we did a lot up in Scotland. Um, because we, there was a gig in Glasgow and then we just stayed there for a few days. We had a couple of days off right at the beginning. And then we went up to Aberdeen and then across to Liverpool or Manchester, I can't remember which. It was really fun. Yeah. Oh God, I want to ask you so much. 
So you were in, you're in the festival chorus. So I joined uh, Crouch End Festival Chorus in March 2012. Mm. I'd been in London for about six months, something like that. And I just, mi I'd missed choral singing. I hadn't really done any for some time because I'd done it so intensively when I was at school and you know, it was all about competitions and it was about being absolutely perfect. Mm. And so I had a little break from it while I was at university. I had a little break from lots of things while I was at university. But I got down to London and I said, and I was just telling my friends at the Guildhall that I was really missing being in a choir and that I wanted to go and sing in one, but I wanted a bit of a challenge, you know, I wanted to do uh, quite a high standard of singing. And my friend who I was training with, who's called Eugenie, she just said, oh, well, I'm in Crouch and Festival Chorus, do you want to just come and try it out? And so I did and went and sang at a rehearsal before I auditioned. It's a big amateur choir, it's a symphonic choir, it's up there with like the London Symphony Chorus, the London Phil, BBC Symphony Chorus, which are all big, big symphony choirs singing to very high standard, but they're all amateur, so everyone's got day jobs. And then I auditioned and I got in, and different choirs do it differently, but how Crouch End do it is that there's a sort of, they call it the small choir, the medium and the full choir, so everyone's in the full choir, but also Crouch End does a lot of external engagements, that's its funding model. Um, they get a lot of income from external engagements that we do, so recordings and gigs and that sort of thing. If you're considered for all of the engagements, you're in the small choir, and if you're considered for some of them, you're in the medium choir. Mm. So I was put straight away into the small choir because I guess I didn't totally cock up my audition. It's all basically down to the conductor, it's all at the discretion of the conductor, that, that, that appears to be how it works for the moment and for the time being. And I was just chosen, it was as simple as that. A few people were invited over email to give their availability, I was one of them. And so that's it, they do all the logistics for you, they, they book all your travel, they book all your accommodation. We were, uh, we were treated very, very well on the old tour, we were taken very, very seriously. You know, we had the same catering as everybody else, sometimes, uh, sometimes that isn't necessarily the case, but we ate with everybody, you know. All the band came in, and they wouldn't always eat together, sometimes they would, but we were, we were just there with everybody, and with the players, and with the crew. It was really, really nice, it was really genial, actually the food was really good as well, <laughs> which again isn't always the case, but it was always really fresh and really healthy and it really felt like we could properly look after ourselves, so it meant that we would, we would do the best job that we could. Yeah. And also in the rehearsals, Noel was very clear about, he wanted everyone on stage at the right time, he wanted everybody warmed up and ready to play. We were expected to do individual sound checks as choristers, so everybody was individually mic'd and we all had to sing on our own into an empty arena, which isn't usual. The choir isn't always kind of front and centre, but he was so concerned about um, every musician that was on the stage with him that that was really important to him that we all were performing at our best and that we could all individually be heard. Wow. So it was really, really cool. It was a really, really great experience to be taken that seriously, you know, and to be so valued as part of the whole crew. He was friendly and he said hello to us. Um, he didn't come over to chat, but I mean, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when he came in to eat, his bodyguards would be with him as well. And I just kind of ended up thinking, he was one of the most famous people on the planet for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I can't, I can't imagine him being able to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, probably even in some celebrity circles without somebody kind of fanboying over him and yeah. kind of... <laughs> Wanting, wanting to chat to him in some way and him having to be that kind of gracious person and actually if I was in his position I'd, I'd be a bit distant as well. Yeah. I'd, I'd limit my access very, very carefully 
I don't blame him. He's been doing it for long enough, you know. Yeah. And if and if you've got to go on stage each night and you've got to give a certain side of yourself, and his and in his case, it requires a lot of energy and there's a lot of swagger. Even though some people might say his stage presence is deadpan and that sort of thing, you know, being the front man, it strikes me that being the front man doesn't necessarily come naturally to him. Mm-hmm. And the crowd, the 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 one of the best things about the Noel gigs, apart from the fact that our musicianship was really necessary and we were being taken really seriously with it, was actually just the level of adrenaline from the crowd, mm-hmm. which just wasn't replicated anywhere else. It was just pure, total, kind of terrifying adulation. Mm-hmm. The way people were staring at him, the way people were making noise to him. It wasn't just a yelling, it was a kind of, it was, I mean, it was like a deification mm-hmm. in some gigs. It was like a hero worship. Mm-hmm. It's enough to drive anybody mad. <laughs> compared to him but we could still soak up some of that energy as well so it was a really surreal and strange I've never really experienced anything quite like it we the only when you when we came off the stage everyone was kind of really buzzing everyone had like a really really big energy the only thing you can do when you're not used to it is to kind of um everyone would kind of go and get wrecked we'd then drink a lot of water so we'd be able to sing (laughs) so it'd be fine but um because we were only there for a, for the best part of a well, for a week and a bit, we didn't we didn't um, we didn't need to sustain ourselves over several months like the rest of the crew did, and we weren't used to this level of energy. So everyone just partied all the time. So it was just this kind of mad, crazy bubble. We were being bussed from place to place. We had our hotels arranged for us. It was it was so totally unlike real life. And I was really grateful, actually, to be able to just stop and go home after a bit. And I thought, I couldn't do this all the time. Yeah. I couldn't manage being a touring musician. I just, I just don't have it in me. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't want to live like that. You'd have to be so mindful of um, looking after yourself. And you'd have to put in so many boundaries and so many parameters in a situation that kind of is controlled because the crew have certain timings and because rehearsals are held at certain times, that sort of thing. But the, but the level of just what it does to your psyche, I would, I would just imagine, is just totally unparalleled. I wonder how you would research that. I would be really interested to research that sort of thing. Well, that's the thing with um, some of the other episodes I did. There was one with the Music Therapist Industry, MITC, Music Industry Therapy Collective. Yes, yeah. 
They, um, they do a lot of work on that. The impact of touring on musicians. Mm. Because the woman who founded it, her name's Tamsin, um, she used to be an artist management booker. I think she used to book people. Um, and a few of the other people in the collective used to work on um, tour management and things like that. Mm. And then they all retrained as therapists. They are therapists with that unique perspective on the touring, so they work with musicians around that. Mm. And um, what you're describing about that intensity and that feeling of you couldn't do this all the time, mm. it reminds me exactly of what they were saying about for those people who do it as a full-time job, that when they come off tour, mm. they're just totally disillusioned. Mm. It's, it's as if they've been institutionalised and mm. kind of back into the real world, but they don't know what to do. Because mm. like, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my meal's not being made for me. I've got to cook. I've got mm. to go to the shops. I've mm. got it. All of that, yeah. So, yeah, what you're saying really strikes... I mean, even after a week and a half, it felt like the lights had been turned down. It just, it felt like, you know, how could I, how could I be in a world <laughs> with all of these other people who were just going about their everyday lives when I just, when I just had the lights and the screaming and 20,000 people going nuts in front of me. But, so I'm, I'm lucky in that regard that I've had a taste of it and then I'm, and then I'm able to leave. Yeah. And what was your favourite song to sing on? Oh... I I we I always felt like I should say one of his, and actually, um, I, I loved doing Everybody's on the Run because there was such goodwill from the choir because that it, that kind of felt a bit like our track mm. because that's quite choral heavy. Um, but I'm going to be honest, singing Champagne Supernova, amazing. With we did Latitude, and there were and there were tens of thousands of people singing it back, mm. and we got to the da 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 that bit that usually gets played on the harmonica and that was our bit and it was just a bit like oh wow <laughs> something of that anyway the fact that you were a choir and I remember that on that um in that um teenage cancer trust gig at the Royal Albert Hall I remember feeling like it felt like it would there was something religious going on it, it mm. yeah so for you I mean <laughs> to be magic I mean that's the that's the best thing when the crowd is singing something back, um, because it's just such a pure expression of love. And maybe it's also adulation, but it doesn't often feel like that. It often feels much warmer, mm. and it feels very, very genuine. And it's this whole... I mean, it's this whole idea that we have of music transcending boundaries and being able to access that space in between mm. um, where, where creative... I guess kind of spiritual things can happen. Mm. 
and you don't need to plan it and you don't need to talk about it. You can just do it and it just happens because you've got, in this case, the choir as a backing, but you've got rhythm and you've got um, a bed of harmony to kind of help contain what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And it can just kind of happen within, within the space inside that, mm -hmm. which is just so cool. I think that connecting it now as you're talking to what you told me in our first interview about when you lost your religion, do moments like this, does, does it ever come back or is it something different for you? It's, um, it's, it didn't feel like a religious experience to me, it felt like a transcendental one. Okay, yeah. I think because I was so religious when I was a child I find it difficult to identify with being spiritual even. But that's not to say that there isn't something there and that, you know, there's, there's something going on that's being experienced and that people are feeling together. It's difficult for me to put into words because everything feels problematic and everything feels uh, quite difficult. But the feeling that I feel right here in my sternum is a feeling that I know very well and is like when I'm at festivals and just something kind of magical has happened in a funny corner of a field somewhere and everyone's just totally tuned into this moment. Or I must say it's like being in a music therapy session when the music is just working mm -hmm. and the conversation is free-flowing and uh, it's just happening without too much thought and it, it, it kind of... It, I feel like I end up kind of connecting on a different plane. I'm just kind of somewhere else for a little bit. And, it, and yeah, it manifests in all of these different ways. But it's... Something is happening somewhere else, which sometimes then you bring back to, uh, I guess, what we would consider as reality mm -hmm. and, and talk about it some more. And other times it's just kind of left in that plane and that's, that's kind of fine. The one, the, I mean, the big one for me is latitude. When, uh, when we, you get, we get to do the soaring, we got given some top A flats in Champagne Supernova for the, because people believe. So we're right there like, so like, really, like much higher. is what Noel's doing and then we're kind of over the top with this new texture that wasn't there before and um, that's the one that really sticks with me that's the one that kind of came with a swell of energy I just felt it just there yeah. <laughs> I just got a tingle yeah 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 and, it, and for me it, it gets me right here right here in my sternum is that where the solar plexus is is yeah. that yeah so it's so it's that kind of it's all it's all there for me and occasionally in my guts but but right here is where I kind of feel it, mm. and it's and it's it's like I don't have any breath except in the rest of my body I have all of the breath and yeah. I can and I can sing and express in any way that I feel. It's really liberating. It's really kind of freeing. Yeah. Well, that's I think that in itself that's another thing I don't feel like that's been studied is the the emotional experience of music and the impact of your body in terms of where in your body you're experiencing because you're describing in the sternum, mm. the solar plexus, which has got so much um, 
symbolism in, in itself like mm. and then when you were talking and I was feeling it and I said I just felt that it, it was like a tingle mm. it, it was as if like this tingle that went right down my legs and when people talk about like a shiver on their spine mm. or, um, these are very physical embodied responses to music and then every everyone that names them is describing the same sort of emotional experience but in a physical embodied way mm. and it that's what blows my mind about music is that that ability to it, it goes to the core of something but I don't know what that something is mm. but it's just like you said transcendental or it has the ability to just make you cry or laugh and not know why mm. <laughs> and it's and it's and it's hard to think about because it feels so because it feels so innate inside all of us and as you say it produces these involuntary reactions that um, that are difficult to quantify in the moment and then they're difficult to think about afterwards as well because they've just happened and you know sometimes um, it, that, that whole phenomenon of listening to sad music to help you feel sad when once you've once you've listened to something and you have a big cry you're over there somewhere you're not you're not where you began there's been there's been a kind of journey as well I think so it's difficult then I think to go back to exactly where it started and kind of think right how did we how did how did I get to a point where I was kind of crying and then I found myself over here like how does that how does that happen but it's like I suppose the nearest thing I can think of is like being in therapy and um again if you you know when when someone feels able to free associate when it works well it just flows and things happen and then I've often kind of found myself coming out of sessions feeling like fucking hell how did that happen where did that come from and a lot of the time a lot of people report not remembering what they've said in sessions and it's the same in music therapy I don't always remember what we've just played and sometimes sometimes it's possible to listen back to recordings in the session and sometimes that's really useful for people because it can help you kind of think about a moment that happened more but sometimes it can feel like when we go back and listen to something we've just done it feels like we're trying to artificially recreate a moment that's already gone mm. and that can't be the thing I like about therapy the most is that it's uh, a lot of it is so fleeting, mm. and just it just sometimes can just give little snapshots of what's going on for someone mentally, and then it's gone again. Mm. And I just think that's really exciting. It's like it's like trying to chase a feather that's kind of forever yeah, getting away from yeah. you. That's a great analogy. Yeah, <laughs> it really it is though, isn't it? Because it's it's almost ungraspable. Mm. Yeah, nebulous. Mm. Yeah. and like when we're on stage and, and it really works and the crowd are really connecting it's like the curtain's drawn back just for, just for that moment just for the length of a song and then maybe the curtain has to come back down again you know but or, or or in therapy you kind of you kind of get to somewhere and you really think about something and something becomes very very clear but uh, that's a difficult thing to think about and then the curtain comes back down again you know it's yeah. it's not it's not a dissimilar feeling kind of happening to me right now in a way because it's interesting how I'm just thinking about how we ended up being in this room yeah like, kind of I don't even know how it happened so like I did this interview with Phil last year or two years ago mm. and completely unaware that you and him were training together mm. and then and then I'm a, an Oasis fan and I'm at the at that gig that you were playing Mm. having this emotional experience that you just described also having mm. and then I decide obviously I'm a therapist and I decide I'm going to do a podcast I interview Phil I 
don't, I can't even remember how it was that you, how did it happen that you got in touch? Oh, there was some... I think it was a Facebook group. It was a Facebook group, yeah. yeah. I think someone invited me onto the page. I went on the page and there was a thing saying, you know, post whatever you're up to. Mm. So I post it and then someone tagged you in it. Oh yeah, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a guy called Paul who I'd had a meeting with because I'd responded to another thread on that group. And he's a positive psychologist, and I didn't know very much about positive psychology. And we had this meeting, and we, we kind of made some vague plans, but nothing really came of it. But he's he's very he's a very nice chap, and it was a bit like, oh, well, uh, if we see anything that's useful for each other, we'll tag each other in it. And so and so I think he saw your message and was like, oh, this will be up Mass's street. <laughs> and, so, and, so then we, and so then we started chatting. And then, because uh, we, we, we don't live too far away from each other, and then it was, and it was easy to meet up, and then, and then that was kind of and, it. Yeah. yeah. And these realizations, mm. and that you practiced like practically next door to where I practice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is incredible. Yeah. This is an example of it. So it's just reminding me of that, and it is so connected to what you're saying about the feather, the curtain opening and closing. It's like, oh, here it is again, and then it closes, mm. and. Um, and how that is a representation of exactly what goes on in a therapy room. Mm. And that you're describing that right now, that in music therapy, that's exactly what's happening. Mm. Fascinating. It's really, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. I mean, I don't know if, I, uh, if, I, if I'm happy with the idea of fate or anything like that. And coincidences, you know, uh, it's very rational and everyone kind of thinks they're very spooky. And yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I don't know. I don't know how much we can ascribe meaning to any of this. Mm. Because if we can't ascribe meaning to it, then maybe lots of things are meaningless. Anyway, um, <laughs> sorry. No, don't be sorry. It's the place for it all. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if some of it is just being in London. Because this sort of thing doesn't happen uh, where I'm from where everyone's out in the sticks and nothing happens. But at the same time, there are some experiences that can feel really universal, mm. but um, there are some experiences that probably are quite similar to other people's but feel extremely unique mm. and, have been, uh, and have been arrived at through a very complex set of uh, relationships and situations and uh, circumstances. Someone once said, as I was just qualifying, we, it, was, it was before a choir concert and we were all having dinner, and one person was like, oh, well, I, I, I'm happy with the package I've got. I don't want to analyse it anymore. And it's like, okay, pal, right, don't worry about it. But someone else said, oh, well, isn't therapy a bit redundant? Aren't people just basically all the same? <laughs> and this guy worked in advertising and it was like, well, maybe it's convenient for you to think like that. But it was just a bit like, wow, you have so little respect for individuals. Mm-hmm. That that's, kind of, that's kind of fascinating in itself. No one is the same. No one, uh, and certainly it's, uh, I think it's helpful for a lot of people to think that they aren't the same mm-hmm. and that their experiences are unique. Yeah, I, I, was rather, I was rather kind of blown away by that comment. It was just be like, how on earth can you think that? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I guess because uh, I'm so used now, and probably you as well, in these circles, in the therapeutic circles of people thinking a particular way, it is weird noticing and realizing that so many people still still even now with with all the mental health raising awareness raising and talk of therapy in the media still there is such a culture for of resistance towards it um 
and I am noticing that like there is quite a lack of respect for the profession and therapists and I don't know whether you experience that personally from clients or what kind of reactions you get from them. I've had, uh, over the time I've been working in all the different places I've worked, um, there are either people, it's more about, um, I'm trying to find exactly the right words. Um, because I don't think it's to do with an understanding of therapy. I think it's because I think we begin to understand therapy as we go along. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, you know, if, if some people knew what therapy was before they began, they'd never, they'd never enter it. It'd be too <laughs> scary. Um, I think it depends on the tenacity of somebody, I think, on their, on their willingness to, to commit to something. Mm-hmm. Because um, it's the ones that go in with the idea of, oh, I'll just do it for a bit and see if it works. Or, you know, they're the ones that inevitably will always leave. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ones that come into it kind of thinking, well, there's something wrong. And I want to try and understand this a bit better. And I don't really know how to do that. And I don't really know what it's going to take. Um, who are more able to kind of tolerate the first however many sessions being a bit like, well, I'm not quite sure what's happening, but I can feel like something's happening. Mm-hmm. Um and then after a while, then the penny starts... To, I mean, this is this is kind of my experience, but it's, it's mirrored in the ones that have stuck around with me and that have worked with me for more than a year or so. Um, the penny seems to drop after, I don't know, a few months. Um, it may be a bit longer, depending on who you're with. Um, but then it's a bit like, right, OK, so now we've started something in motion and now I'm finding out all these things about myself. Um, and now I'm understanding more, and actually this is pretty hard, and sometimes I have a week where I just feel like I don't want to do this at all, Mm. and other weeks where something interesting happens, and I find out something more about myself, and I feel, uh, I mean, better's a reductive term, but I feel like I understand something more, maybe, Mm. Um, and therefore it's worth carrying on. Mm. Someone either has the, the patience and the tenacity to be able to contemplate doing that, or they don't, that seems to be the distinction at the moment. I mean, maybe I'll think differently as 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 time goes on, but that seems to be the case. Mm-hmm. And also, there are there are quirks depending on the client group. Also, um, I've done a lot of work with people with autism, and uh, the thing that's unique for um, people with autism is that you always end up working with the family, however old the person is, because the person needs much more support often than they're prepared to admit. And secondly, the families are always really, really horrendously anxious, mm-hmm. without exception. Um, because uh, the, there's an article by Joan Bicknell, it was written in the 80s, but I find it so helpful. But it's this idea that um, for families of children with special needs, uh, a lot of the time, the children were born without a diagnosis. I mean, this is especially uh, apparent for people with autism. So you have, to all intents and purposes, a healthy neurotypical child who's happy. Mm. And things are all right for a year or two. And usually with autism, the earliest that a child will get diagnosed is about two. And if that's the case, then things just start to go wrong or they're a bit odd. So, you know, the child won't make eye contact and or the child will just play on their own all the time and the parents might feel like they're being rejected and that's pretty difficult and so something's up and they're not quite sure what's going on and so they take their child to the doctors and the doctor gives them this word that they haven't heard of before 
which is a big and scary and terrifying word, and I know that because that's what the parents tell me it is. Because mm. lots of the parents haven't even considered autism before and they don't know what it is, and there's just so many unknowns and there's so many different types. It can look so different mm. that it's just really difficult to know what you've got coming ahead. So on one hand, the parents are anxious and frightened because all the milestones have changed um, and their child is going to develop at a different level and they might not get to the same level as other children and it's difficult to know because they've never experienced this before and so they have to rely on these experts who sometimes are experts and sometimes are snake oil salesmen it's the same with, with lots of yeah. different things but they have to they have to rely on these other people who, who hopefully know more to be able to tell them what the fate is for their child and then at the same time which what I thought was the radical thing they're grieving the loss of the neurotypical child they thought they had. Mm. So the two things are going on at the same time. And also the Bicknell talks about um, a lot of parents kind of internalising it. Well, if there's something wrong with their child, then there's something wrong with me. And then there's, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong and I've, maybe I've poisoned them or maybe I've um, hurt them in some way or maybe this is a punishment for something that I did. Mm. And what I often find and some of the professionals agree with me, is that um, often the child is sent for therapy because the child has the diagnosis. And often the child can benefit from therapy and it can be quite useful um, for a number of reasons. But also it would be really useful if the parents had therapy as well. Mm. Um, in another setting, possibly by another therapist even, but it would be really good for the parents to have interventions as well. But for the majority of parents, that's really, really difficult to contemplate. Mm. Because lots of parents have become carers. Lots of people's marriages break down. The whole self of identity has changed. Mm. If you're the sort of therapist that puts any credence in the Oedipus complex like I am, there can often be, uh, I seem to have observed, quite very intense Oedipal connections between a child with autism and one of the parents. Right, okay. They can become a real pairing to the detriment of the other parent. Um, this is purely based on observation. I don't know uh, if there's any research into it or anything like that. That's just something that I often see and often end up thinking about as part of the work because it's difficult for the child then as well uh, to uh, exist outside of this pairing with one of their parents. Um, and it just it just makes things tough for everybody. So you, would you work with children then in your, in your practice? Do you see children? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. For the most part, it happens to be that the, uh, I am working with slightly older children who are maybe going into adolescence. Okay. Um, but it is I've done lots of work with very young children as well with autism. Mm. And do you notice, I mean, is there a difference for you working with children compared to adults who come to see you? Um, if we're talking about autism specifically, mm. it's more actually to do with how advanced their autism is. Okay. Um, so, uh, I mean, a key thing, to be honest, is whether they can talk or not. Mm. If someone can talk, um, then you work very, very differently with somebody who can't. Somebody who can't, it's all entirely non-verbal. Um, and maybe with autism, there's something called echolalia, where um, certain phrases are, uh, are heard by the autistic child and then kind of parroted back like it's in a pattern. And that can be there to a greater or lesser extent. So I had this really interesting experience um, with a child um, who I did some assessment sessions for. I'm just going to change the example slightly. I'm thinking about it now just to keep it confidential. 
I've been working with this little boy. I was just doing three assessment sessions for him. And I was just singing what he was doing. So um, I was singing, uh, Robert is running and hiding. Where's Robert? Like that. Um, because that's what he was doing. And so then I would kind of pretend to look for him around the room. But he then sang it back to me in his third week, but in a context that wasn't uh, to do with him running or hiding at all. We'd been sat on the floor and he kind of looked at me and he went, and he'd remembered the consonants and everything. It was really uncanny. And he just went, Robert is running and hiding and kind of looked at me and smiled. And so I think what he was doing, and I say this because of, uh, because of how he behaved in, in the assessment session, so this is a reasonable guess. Um, it felt like he was saying, I've listened to what you've been singing and I know that it's in relation to me, so I'm going to sing it back to you because I've been picking up on that as well. Mm. But that didn't mean that he understood what I was singing because mm. um, he didn't recognise that I was singing it in relation to him running and hiding, which is, oh. which is how I knew it was echolalia. But it was really spooky. Mm. It kind of came out of nowhere. It was just a bit like, wow, you are you have learnt the pattern sufficiently enough that it sounds like you're speaking properly. Because this was somebody who uh, doesn't really have language and whose mother was really desperate for him to have language. And it's at a pretty crucial point because um, he, was, he was a young boy, he was about seven or eight. If you haven't mastered language by the time you're about nine, developmentally it's just not going to happen for you. Um, which is really, really difficult for a lot of parents to kind of get their heads around. My mum used to be a speech therapist and so when I was working with autism a lot I was kind of saying, right, what things do I need to look out for, you know, how, how could I... That, that, and that was one of the things that really stuck with me. Okay. You, have to, you, have to have, uh, you have to have done it by then, otherwise it's just not going to work. Um, which is really tough because I think um, for parents where the child doesn't have language that means they're going to need support for the rest of their life. They're not going to be able to do things independently. Mm. And that has a lot of implications for someone as a parent as well. Mm. Um, it, it's a total life change, mm. you know. Um, so that can often be a really difficult thing for parents. So um, a thing for music therapy with him is going to be, um, because someone in my team took over that work, um, someone uh, for him it's going to be whether he's going to be able to understand uh, what words are mm -hmm. if he's going to be able to develop any understanding using words or whether it's going to have to be entirely nonverbal. Mm -hmm. okay which is a very very different style of work to uh, working with somebody who's feeling very anxious for whatever reason and can talk and can tell me about it mm -hmm. You know, it requires a completely different set of skills. I'm not going to be making interpretations with a non-verbal autistic boy. Mm. I am going to be thinking transferentially, and I am going to be thinking about um, all the feelings I'm feeling, uh, you know, are they mine or have they been projected into me, and why might they be manifesting in this way? Mm. But I'm not going to be interpreting that to him. So if someone, if someone is in that position, mm. and they've got a child who's autistic, they're a family... Would, would they come as a family to you? They could do, um, but I don't do very much of that work. Okay. Um, other, other music therapists do, and it's really, really useful and rewarding. Um, and in some cases it might be appropriate for the family to do that, but a lot of the time what I find 
excuse me, is that the child has been referred on their own. And even if I can see that it would be useful for the family to be in the room with him or her or them, um, it's not going to happen. The family are too defended. Mm. That seems to be the experience I've had so far. Okay. With really, really young children that have just had a diagnosis, um, sometimes their parents come in with them, and you can think about attachment a bit more then as well, which is quite nice. Yeah. That's often. That's often. Uh, that can often feel quite warm at work. Mm. It might be worth bringing this in now. Then, how can people contact you? Because um, if people want to contact North London Music Therapy, um, there's a website northlondonmusictherapy.com. Um, they can just give me a ring. Um, my number is on the website, um, or um, there's a general um, information. Uh, email which is info at northlondonmusictherapy.com mm. um, the usual process is um, someone gets in touch I give them a ring um, I ask them to fill out a referral form uh, so that there's a bit more information about the person that's coming for therapy mm. then there's an initial meeting so we put faces to names and um, we decide what we're going to do from there mm. and then the usual process is uh, regardless of your diagnosis or background we offer about three assessment sessions just so that um, everyone gets used to making the journey at that time. We all check that the therapy is, uh, music therapy is the right thing for that person, that they're going to be able to make use of the space and of the creative medium that's on offer. That's been quite useful. And then the only question after that is, um, and it's usually a financial one to be honest, it's um, do we want to do a fixed term thing where we offer therapy for, say, six months and then we stop, or we offer therapy for, say, a term and then we review it each term? Mm -hmm. Or are we happy to say that therapy, and this is my preferred, are we happy to say that therapy would be an open-ended arrangement mm -hmm. and that you would have as much therapy as you feel you need and then we talk about um, ending at a point when, uh, when we think it's a good idea to do so. Um, so it can be quite tailored and it can be quite bespoke, which I quite like. Yeah. Um, I've set it up so that it can be as responsive as possible mm. to whatever somebody needs. Mm. I like doing it this way as well because um, it gives a lot of time initially to have discussions and for people to ask lots of questions mm. um, because therapy is really scary and we're um, encouraging uh, the type of therapy that is being offered through North London Music Therapy is quite a commitment. It's, it's a long-term thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I'm aware that people have to be able to trust that we will do a good job mm -hmm. in order for them to decide that they would like to try having therapy with us and that that's actually quite a privilege. Um, and so I think it's important for me and all the therapists that they will probably be working with, because it's not just me, I have a team now, mm -hmm. um, you know me and their therapist to be available at the beginning to just kind of do a bit of myth busting mm. to begin with. I've, I've found that that's been quite helpful so far. Mm. And would you only work in London? Do you, do you see yourself working in other parts of the UK? <laughs> I called myself North London Music Therapy deliberately so oh, that okay. I wouldn't travel too much, but, but of course that was a silly idea. <laughs> um, I don't know, so far the work's been in London. Okay. We're going to trial something in the new year. We're going to trial some corporate workshops. Um, first of all, they're going to be based around the voice, um, but there's going to be a therapeutic element to them as well. 
what I'd like to do eventually is um, something that a colleague of mine and Phil's, um, a music therapist called Max Risch, is uh, just starting up. But have you, do you know the idea of Barlint groups? No. So a Barlint group, uh, Michael Barlint was a psychoanalyst who was working just after the Second World War and he pioneered this idea of there being a group space within a hospital for doctors and other members of staff, well in fact all hospital staff, to just um, talk in quite an experiential way how they're feeling about their work environment, any issues they might have with patients, but kind of at an emotional level. And um, so Max is uh, doing uh, violent groups, but for the workspace. And that's the sort of thing we'd like to offer as well. Um, so um, that's where I'd quite like to get to eventually. Okay, amazing. But that might end up being all over the country, I don't know. Um, but so far, um, we've been offering therapy. It's been individual therapy so far, but I'm not averse to group therapy. It's just been a case of numbers, to be honest. Um, but we've been offering individual therapy. I've got a clinic in Highgate. There's another one that someone's running for me out in Harrow. We're setting up work in schools. We're setting up work in people's homes. Um, and we've been running workshops and lectures Amazing. as well. I just keep thinking of all the different components of what you do. Mm. The Guild Hall, Bounce, In the Crouch and Festival Chorus. You're a chorister. You work with the churches. You teach singing. Mm. You're a music therapist. Several different sites. You're running your own business. It sounds and it feels very full. Mm. Everything that you do has so much satisfaction to it. I mean, I don't know. If, is that how you feel? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I've kind of, I've kind of rejigged my week in the past year or two, so that I can concentrate on things that I'm finding satisfying mm -hmm. so it's been more of a conscious decision as well to do that but I mean I had to do something like music therapy because I couldn't work in an office every day I was really clear about that right from the beginning even that one year working on the phones in the Halifax was fucking soul destroying I absolutely hated it mm -hmm. I never ever want to go back to that ever again mm -hmm. to not have music making in my everyday also would just uh just wouldn't really know how to manage mm. to be honest mm. I've got to play something or sing something at least once a day mm. and it doesn't have to be music therapy so Thursdays Thursdays are really fun because I teach singing from home and I'm very lucky that I teach non-beginners and so a lot of it is vocal coaching and I can teach bits of theory which is good because that's made my practice better and it's made me a more efficient um, musician. I can read more fluently now because I've been teaching other people. So it's filled in all of my gaps because mm. I've had to do that in order to be able to teach other people. And North London Music Therapy was so that I could work from a base and that I, I still have to travel to work, which is fine because I don't need to live in the same place that my patients do. That's, that's really fine. Mm. But uh, it's not so far that... Because I was working in South London when I was working in the hospital and I was setting up a new post and that was an hour and a half each way. Yeah, that's, that's going to be so destroying. Yeah, it was too much. And trying to navigate that in a tube strike in London yeah, as well yeah, is just really horrible. So I don't have to do any of that anymore. I barely get the tube anymore, in mm -hmm. fact. Mm -hmm. And I never, I hardly ever get the tube at peak time so I don't have to do the sardine tubes anymore. Oh, God. Which, yeah, is, which okay. is amazing. I'm with you there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can travel to a lot of places on the bus or in the car, and I have enough flexibility in my week that I can do different things. Like I can do a day of auditioning, or I can do a gig with the Mind's Ear Orchestra, and I can play improvised music mm -hmm. with an orchestra full of musicians. Mm -hmm. 
my clinical work is absolutely sacrosanct. Like everything moves around the clinical work. So on Mondays I have my Guildhall clinical work and it, it's looking like from the new year on Fridays it's going to be my NLNT clinical day. But a lot of work for NLNT I don't take on, I give to my team so that I can be free to um, look after all the new referrals and bring in, bring in new work. I want us to be a voice in the profession because music therapists work in so many different ways. I want to be an advocate for long-term psychodynamically informed music therapy. I want NLNT to be known as the company that does that and that we can and that we can offer some expertise on that and also I want NLMT to be known as a company again this is something that we're going to go into that that uses a lot of vocal work and that works with music therapists and that we look after music therapists not just the ones that work for us but other music therapists that might want to have some more training or to get some CPD that sort of thing I'd like to be able to look after the profession a bit as well Basically, everything I'm interested in, I just do it these days. Because yeah. I, worked, I worked as a music therapist in lots of different places for five years. I got lots of experience in lots of different places. And it's not like I know everything. I don't think I'll... I hopefully won't ever know everything. But I know enough that I can... I know what type of service I want to provide. And I'm in a position now where I can provide it, which is really cool. And as you've been, te- you've been talking about um, teaching, mm. you said you, this is where you do your teaching. Yes, I teach in this room. Okay. I have my piano over there. I'll just move that chair out a bit so that the students got some space just mm. there. But also they can stand up and move around if they want to. Sometimes people bring stands. Sometimes they just hold the music. Sometimes they do it from memory. Um, some people sing by ear. Some people sing for music. Some people are preparing for exams. And some people are just singing for the fun of it. And a lot of mine come because... They just want someone to help them practice their breathing as they sing and just check that their voice is in the right place. Mm-hmm. So we're doing a lot of kind of careful and intricate work, but it's in an environment that is quite safe and is quite nice and hopefully feels quite welcoming to my students. It means that I'm doing some music that isn't bound up with patience mm-hmm. the whole week, which at one point I wasn't doing. Okay. And so I made, a, I made a conscious decision to bring teaching back into my week and not to be a music therapist full-time because my music was getting a bit lost Mm. and I wasn't quite sure where I was and choir wasn't satisfying enough because it wasn't my music making whereas this feels like it is and more of the performing I've been doing recently singing with other choirs and things that that just feels a bit more like it's mine Mm. so that's that's been feeling pretty good Mm. I'm just in a really nice place at the moment which is it really sounds it Mm. (laughs) I I think also I've had to kind of come to the realization that I'm not very good at working for other people I've tried and tried and tried but I think part of my frustration was not just being in an office it was being beheld into somebody else's time you know I can attend meetings and I can attend sessions and I can do them on time but when I have to be at nine o'clock somewhere at nine o'clock for a briefing that I find arbitrary and they're going to tell me off in the summer if I don't wear shoes with backs on them (laughs) Like, just fuck that. I don't care. Life is too short. I don't I don't want to be messed around like that. I just... Ugh. I'm really with you on that. And, yeah. I, and I, I... this What you describe is so right up my street because mm. I've always feared and hated this overly controlled 
situation where I, you know and I've been there myself like um, hour and a half commutes two hour commutes mm. like a sardine like a zombie getting to work and asking if I can have a dentist appointment and being told no yeah you yeah, yeah, yeah. Be within these hours and these hours and you can only take a flexi time and you've got to fill in this sheet just to bloody have your teeth looked at yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> like I completely completely appreciate that and get that and and actually it's really nice hearing you say that you have successfully come out of that and you're doing what you love Mm. and it's not just one thing it's several things you're weak as your own and I think that is one of the great things about therapy itself both being a client and and being a therapist Mm. you get to shape your life and the the therapeutic profession allows for this. Yeah. Lovely. with Marianne to make any inquiries. She's offering services for music therapy currently remotely amid COVID-19. She's also launched a new phone support service which is free for COVID-19 workers and those on the front line. You can contact her directly at her website northlondonmusictherapy.com.